Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And today we're going to talk about the economy of South Central Indiana. With me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have two guests with us today. Uh, Indiana Business Research Center Director Jerry Conover is here, and Indiana State University Professor of Economics Robert Gill has joined us from Terre Haute. You can... um, Join us on the program in a number of ways. You can phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Sorry. Or you can uh, come to our new website at uh, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So those phone numbers, again, 877-285-9348 if you're from Terre Haute or outside of the local calling area at 855-0811. So thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Robert. Thanks, Bob, for being here. Uh, Mary Catherine. Hi, Bob. Hi. We'll, we're, we've got a lot to talk about today with the economy, the local and regional economy, probably a little bit about the national economy. So let's just start out this way, I guess, and, and Jerry, we'll start with you. Can you sort of gauge, you know, from the economy's in excellent shape to the economy as the worst it's ever you've ever seen, you know, where is the, the <laughs> let's see, the southern Indiana economy for you right now? Ooh, Southern Indiana. Now that's a, that's yeah. a big area. Yeah. If you were asking about the Bloomington area per uh-huh. se, I'd say it's uh, somewhere in the better half of the spectrum, but uh, not close to the top. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's pretty good, actually, in these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, our, our economy here has long been somewhat insulated from the ups and downs of the larger economy, as is true in many college towns. Uh, with relatively stable employment at the university and the community college, growing employment in the case of our community college especially, um, anchoring a, a lot of sort of inertia that keeps us from, from falling as fast. But uh, that that buffer has faded away a bit over the last uh, several months as the, the state economy and the national economy have been struggling and we're starting to feel more of it here closer to home. Mm-hmm. How about in Terre Haute? Terre Haute has had some uh, real challenges. Uh, in the last year, Pfizer has announced its uh, final plans and that, that provided uh, several hundred, 600 or more really good engineering uh, $80,000, $70,000, a year jobs that you just don't replace. Uh, in addition, of course, the national economy and the credit uh, crunch put a really big hurt on those businesses that focus their sales to other businesses that are reliant on credit and specifically Great Dane has uh, a facility in both Terre Haute and in Brazil, Indiana and their customers during the credit crunch of September and October simply couldn't get access to credit and had to cancel the orders that they had, had, had previously engaged in. And, and so while there have been uh, some upsides in, in terms of hiring, uh, the most notable one being a call service center, uh, Alorica, uh, hiring uh, three or 400 uh, folks, these are at the $10 an hour rather than $80,000 a year range. And th- those kinds of jobs, you, there's, there's no volume of those kinds of jobs that can make up for that significant loss at Pfizer. Mm-hmm. Well, Jerry, Jerry said, uh, you know, in that that sort of strange question I asked, he said that the Bloomington economy would be in the top half of the spectrum. Where, what about the Terre Haute economy? Well, I've been in Terre Haute uh, since 1991, mm-hmm. and it is about as gloomy as it has been during that time. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, coming off of a period about three years ago when nearly everything was looking up in Terre Haute, and for the first time. In a very long time, things were looking up. Uh, Sony won the Blu-ray HD war uh, and all North American production of Blu-ray discs are in Terre Haute. That was an exciting thing. Uh, Pfizer had uh, located uh, an inhaled insulin product that they thought was their new big thing uh, with Exubera and and that that sold maybe – uh, a thousand prescriptions a month, and there's no way you can make money at that. And they closed it down. It was 
Uh, it has been the biggest turnaround for the negative, uh, certainly, that I've experienced in the time in Terre Haute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about – you mentioned the credit crunch and I, and I want both of you to talk a little bit about that and how that, how that plays out. I mean you were talking about how companies couldn't get credit so they had to cancel contracts that they thought they had. Um, just sort of give us a primer on what the credit crunch has meant to local businesses. Jerry? I mean you can pick an example or – well, it's uh, you know it's just like uh, for consumers when they don't have access to credit. If they've tapped out their credit card or the they go to the bank looking for a loan to do a home improvement or something, and and the bank says, "Sorry, we don't we can't lend you the money," uh, it really limits their ability to to spend and put money into the economy and keep things moving. And it's uh, magnified for businesses given the larger size of their borrowing compared to most consumers. So it's affecting small businesses especially who have had a harder time getting access to capital and for whom they don't have the the major securities markets to go to. They they rely on banks to keep them uh, in operating capital. So if they're having a harder time getting loans because the lenders are more reluctant to lend – uh, it's not that they don't have money to lend, but they're they're being a lot more picky as to who they'll give it to, uh, gun shy, I guess you could say. Um, then it's hard for those businesses to hire people uh, to expand. It's hard for them to buy new equipment. Uh, they may have great plans for how they'd like to grow the business, but it takes money to create that growth. And unless they have the cash reserves, unless they are cash flush themselves then they can't pull it off. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the, the startling statistics at a two-month period from Labor Day uh, to Thanksgiving, uh, the Federal Reserve is putting out data all the time and one of the pieces of data that they put out that folks who took uh, macroeconomics in college can remember the reserve requirement, how much mm-hmm. banks had to have on reserve. Well, required reserves to most banks are wasted money. Uh, they only make money when they loan money and so they like to keep the reserves at – right at the requirement. And in uh, Labor Day of, of this last year, uh, required reserves were about a billion dollars. Thanksgiving, they were $600 billion. Wow. So as Jerry said, they had the money to lend. They were just very scared to lend the money because they didn't know – uh, who could ultimately pay them back? I'll give you a, an example of how this affects a particular small business. I am I I dearly love my local flower shop, uh, uh, the Apple House in Terre Haute. They they sell trees and flowers and and, and all the rest. And he, of course, the the owners of this business can't just write a check for their uh, the flowers and the trees, the shrubs that they're going to sell in. In May and June to everybody who comes in at Mother's Day and buys whatever they're going to plant that season, that they've got to do it on borrowed money. Now, if they can't get access to credit, they pretty much have to shut down. Mm-hmm. And that's why a, uh, a credit crunch, that's why the TARP had to, had to pass. It had to pass in order to free up the money. Now, we've got some, some real challenges in terms of accountability as to whether the banks are ultimately going to lend that money. But you can't live without a financial system and we were on the verge of trying to. And when you you refer to the TARP, that's the, the bailout. Troubled a- yeah, right. the troubled asset whatever, rescue yeah. plan or right. whatever it was called. Right. Yeah. OK. Our phone numbers are 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Uh, we're talking with Jerry Conover and Robert Gill and they are both uh, – well, Jerry's with the Indiana Business Research Center in, uh, that's affiliated with IU. And um, Bob is with the Indiana State University as a professor of economics. So let's let's go back and talk about being cash flush a, a little bit. Why is it unreasonable to expect a business? For example, let's. I love your flower shop analogy. Let's stick with that. Why is it unreasonable to expect them to, um, throughout their business year, save enough money up to buy their spring? Um, um, their inventory. Yeah, their inventory. Thank right. you. I lost my word well, there. M- m- very few businesses will engage in inventory management by having the cash on hand, certainly not small businesses. And when you're talking about a business like a nursery that has 
that is essentially in the turnover business, right? We're going to buy a whole bunch of stuff and contract it for it in January and February and sell it the 80 percent of what you're going to sell in the months of April, May, and June, it is unrealistic to expect that they would have that kind of cash on hand. Now, one of the things that we are uh, – that that would be beneficiary at the at the national level is that corporate earnings were rather robust during 2006, 2007. So at the larger corporate level, you probably have the kind of cash on hand outside the auto industry obviously. But most of them do have the cash on hand and relatively ready assets to do that kind of uh, investment in the future. For instance, this encrypt the uh, the steering column manufacturer that's in Terre Haute had the cash on hand and is looking two years down the line. It's not looking at auto sales right now. It knows that people will ultimately be buying cars and they provide steering columns. And so they are, in fact, expanding in Terre Haute and they announced that this week. Wow, that's exciting. We've had an email that's mm-hmm. come in. Let's go to that. Um, this person uh, went to our new website, which is wfiu.org slash noon edition to make this comment. So we're glad that people are finding our new website. Um, it begins, I was wondering about the real estate outlook for 2009. How is the local impact of the economic crisis expected to impact local home prices? Um, I think it would be interesting to hear from both of you on that because really two very different markets, I think. Jerry? Jerry? All right. Uh, Well, in in the local area here in Bloomington, uh, the real estate market has slowed down noticeably over the past year, uh, but it it didn't experience the the big freeze, the big drop uh, when the bubble burst uh, around other parts of the country because we never really had the kind of growth that many areas did in the housing market. Prices hadn't skyrocketed, Mm -hmm. so they didn't have as far to fall. But houses have been on the market a good bit longer than has been the case and there are more houses that are just sitting out there uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Some of them uh, involved in foreclosures or people who maybe haven't been foreclosed on but they they needed to move to something more affordable and they put the house on the market and um, a lot of folks stressed by the kinds of loans that they had. In many cases, those adjustable rates started making the payments unaffordable. So there's there's been more inventory on the market which has made it more of a buyer's market but the demand hasn't really been there to keep sales uh, at the levels they have been. At the same time, they're not that far below. Uh, we're talking maybe 20 percent down from last year and the outlook for the rest of, of 2009 is – Well, it's going to depend greatly on the overall economic situation. People have to have jobs and incomes in order to pay for those houses. But assuming that the the broader economy starts turning around in the latter part of this year, uh, we would expect the the inventory of houses to become closer to its regular level, uh, its normal level later in the year. And as a result, housing sales to start picking up, uh, prices to at least not continue slipping and maybe start turning back. That said, there's still a lot of sluggishness in the higher end, you know, 250000 and up range, uh, though there's, there's houses being built. I, I drive past them every day to and from work, na- new neighborhoods where large houses keep popping up and somebody's building them, but it's not a real hot segment of the market right now. Uh, Terre Haute's uh, upper end market from uh, 225, 250 and up was absolutely decimated mm-hmm. by the departure of Pfizer. Uh, in one neighborhood in particular that was in the same area, essentially across U.S. 41 from the, the Pfizer plant that, that was – that's just a shell of its former self uh, – with 30 homes on the market in a neighborhood of 100 homes. And so uh, that – the homes in, in, in that price range are simply not going to move for a while because there's not jobs coming in that are at the income level that would justify a $300,000 house. Mm-hmm. And one of them sits right next to mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and couldn't, I, and, and one, one of the problems, of course, in, in a neighborhood is if a house is sitting next to yours – that's empty for a very, very long time, you can just watch the equity in your house mm-hmm. uh, fall, uh, 
the example I like to use is I walked back to their swimming pool and it was a pond because the the real estate company had very quickly realized that there was no point in pumping a whole lot of chemicals into this house that was not going to sell for months. So they just let the pond, the, the pool go. And uh, there are homes in Terre Haute uh, that have not been – have have not been inspected since the June flood that were either foreclosed or people left. So there's nobody who knows what kind of mold is growing in those homes. And that's and, – and so that's very troubling about the Terra real estate market. Mm-hmm. So what recommendations would you have or what, what th- kinds of things I – I won't necessarily ask for recommendations. But what kinds of things can city governments do to help try to, to – um, well, um, ameliorate some of these problems that the economy is bringing to the communities. Or is it bigger than city government? Yeah. yeah well, in 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 this state, mm-hmm. where it is unconstitutional for the state or local governments to borrow for operating purposes, and because of uh, the governor's success in uh, transferring the tax burden from property taxes to sales taxes, and because property taxes are notoriously stable and mm-hmm. sales taxes are notoriously unstable, uh, city governments are looking at huge holes. So they're, they're not going to be in the business of fixing those holes. They're going to be in the business of trying to circle the wagons and keep police and fire and all the rest going. So it's all about basic services. Yeah. yeah it's, in, in the truest sense of the word basic. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things uh, – that could go would be those things that we like our cities to do that we can live with our cities not doing. Leaf pickup in the fall, mm-hmm. golf courses owned by municipalities. Uh, those kinds of things could go away fairly quickly in the next two or three golf years. Golf courses just might get tougher if they don't mow the grass or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I know that our golf course is self-supporting for the most part, so don't worry about and that. The, and the Terre Haute uh, golf courses lose something on the order of three-quarters of a million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and that's a hole that if it's a choice between police and fire and golf courses – you know, right. one's going to win every single time. You're going to have a lovely hilly meadow, aren't yeah. you? <laughs> well, it's it's that quality of life uh, factor right. that you know, in good times, communities uh, are more willing and and eager to invest in things that that make it a nicer place to be. You know, urban trails and parks and rec kinds of investments and cultural events and things like that. And I think we can realistically expect less uh, money to spend on those sorts of things from the county and from the city mm-hmm. uh, until the economy starts picking up again, uh, which is unfortunate. The other area where you really feel it close to home is in social services that um, are suffering for a couple of reasons. Well, several reasons really. First of all, demand is up. More people are stressed in various ways and need those services at the same time that fewer people feel able to give contributions to them. Uh, to the nonprofits at the level that they maybe did in the past. And local governments as well aren't able to contribute as much as they've been hoping to or, or wanting to in the past. So uh, it's belt tightening time, even where it really hurts the most in terms of providing help to people who need it. Mm-hmm. And, that, yeah. and that may be where uh, some Democrats in, at the national level are looking to uh, start to push parts of the stimulus package to local governments so that those those basic services, the social services, uh, don't go away. Medicaid in particular is going to be a, a, a big black hole for the state of Indiana and uh, Indiana being no different than any other state. I believe that there's likely to be a, a federal patch applied uh, for at least for 2009. So what lessons do we learn from other communities who have experienced this? I'm thinking of Gary, Indiana or even further north where the, the auto industry is really decimated and, and uh, kind of gutted some of their larger cities. What do we learn from them that we can apply to this? There's a whole host of lessons that you learn in times like these uh, that – you unlearn in times like the 90s uh, or even more recently. Uh, the 
there was a very old philosopher by the name of Joseph Schumpeter who talked about creative destruction, mm -hmm. that societies need this kind of cleansing action. Uh, the, the, the problem is that pe real people suffer a whole lot mm -hmm. during the destructive por uh, portion. Now, if you want to focus on the creative portion, we can talk about uh, nationally the financial services area where there were loans to, uh, made to people who demonstrably could not pay those loans and that changing the culture to an immediate – from immediate consumption culture to a – you know, that old 30 percent rule, that was a pretty good rule. You didn't have to live by it perfectly but paying 50 percent of your income in housing is just too much. Mm -hmm. That's I, I would uh, echo Bob's comment there that you, we've got to really achieve a change in the mindset of people as consumers who enjoyed a, essentially a free ride for a long time. When, when housing prices were rising in many parts of the country, people were using their houses as ATMs. Mm -hmm. They would get uh, – get money out of them every several months in many cases by yeah. taking out new home equity loans. The value goes up. The equity is higher. So let's borrow more and spending it on things that didn't have the lasting value of a home and consumable goods. And as a result, I mean, they kept thinking as long as, as the property gets more valuable, then eventually I'll be able to pay all this off. But that's, that's a, a shell game. You know? <laughs> but it, but it's, a, it's a shell game that Normal people who can't, you know, live 80 years and draw from all of that experience, they they live in the time in which they live, and in the 20 years since the the last housing bust in the early 80s, home prices did go up faster than anything else, and uh, so one of the things that changed during that period was the behavior of bankers. Bankers who used to loan people money and give them credit counseling during the the time when they were filling out the loan and saying, do you really need to borrow this much? And uh, I don't advocate going back to the 363 days, uh, but the, the, the behavior of assuming that your home is always going to provide you with better returns than another investment, uh, it's understandable how it came about. But we need to, to change the way people think about their homes. This is where I live. This is something I need to protect, but it is not an ATM. 363? 363, which was an old banker's rule that you would uh, pay 3 percent on a passbook savings account, charge 6 percent on a mortgage, and be on the golf course by 3 in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Well, I, it does kind of beg the question, and I've heard this discussed before, that the, the cycle tends to be about as long as our collective memory is. Mm -hmm. And then we as a country make the same mistakes over and over again. But you say this, this round is a little different because banking behavior has changed. This round is very different because we're no longer borrowing from uh, the leaders of our community they're simply writing the paper and then selling it on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had to call my bank and it took them a half hour to figure out who owned my mortgage. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I do, they do all the servicing of the mortgage, they had to dig relatively deep into their computer system to figure out who owned it. And giving up that local ownership of the mortgage uh, by selling it off to other financial companies means that the lender, the, the bank that originated the loan, or the mortgage broker that originated the loan no longer had any interest in how well the borrower did at paying it off because they made their money by origination fees, commissions, if you will, up front mm -hmm. and then got rid of it and no more risk. And when that was the case, it really didn't discourage at all giving out loans to people who were high risk. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we had, we had a, a, a local mortgage company uh, that talked about getting you that easy money. And in a culture where you think money is easy, money is cheap, you're going to spend it as if it's cheap and it's easy. Uh, money is not easy. It's not that easy to come by. You have to work for it. You have to save it. Uh, so it is a mat matter of a culture change. Mm -hmm. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, we are talking today with Indiana Business Research Center Director Jerry Conover and Indiana State University Professor of Economics Robert Gill. If you have questions or comments, please join us after this short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. 
You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini quiz, and movie play and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org. What area, how a stimulant... All right, welcome back to Noon Edition. We were just having a, a very... Uh, lively break. Lively break, lively discussion over the break. Uh, we're talking about the economy, and of course, that's a big issue for everybody these days in, in South Central Indiana and the rest of the country and the rest of the world. So we've got two great guests with us today, Indiana Business Research Center Director Jerry Conover and Indiana State University Professor of Economics Robert Gill. If you want to join us on the program, phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Yeah, we were having we – were, we're getting carried away with where we want to go with the second <laughs> half of the program. Um, I, you know, we've been all about bad news in the first half of the program and we can't really balance that with all good news in the second half. I'm certain of that. But are there sectors of the economy that are actually doing well in the, the Indiana economy? Jerry? Sure. Um, and and this is true nationally as well. But uh, the the growth that we see most reliably, most regularly in uh, where jobs are are being formed is in education and healthcare services, and especially the healthcare part of that. Um, it's a growing field that in the Bloomington area per se has gained oh looks like about three hundred jobs over the last year. Uh, which for a community this size is is a substantial uh, growth. Um, and there's going to continue to be a need for health services. And fortunately, the state and, and especially the local uh, uh, leaders in this area have recognized that and have been making investments to try to meet that need through educational programs. Ivy Tech has uh, developed a a number of programs to train people for providing those services in hospitals and healthcare facilities um, and to support that industry. Of course, the med school is always uh, cranking out uh, physicians and the like, but um, it's an area where there continues to be growth. It, it drives the sector of manufacturing, which is doing the best in the Bloomington area, continues to be in the pharmaceutical area with uh, uh, more than 200 jobs uh, gained over the last year. And because people are uh, – because the population is getting older uh, and there's going to be more need for health care in the years ahead, we can expect that to continue. So training programs that go clear down into the K-12 school level to try to get people interested in careers and, and prepared for them and then community college and university level training – uh, whether in the sciences or, or delivery of healthcare or the business of managing healthcare, all of those are fields that uh, uh, there's some promise for, and that we see good activity here locally, and at least some ray of hope at the state level. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, clearly, those are the two th- two main areas. I, in driving down from from Terre Haute, uh, Cook is obviously putting a, a massive addition on its fil- facility uh, in the Spencer area. Uh, education is traditionally one of the things that s- remains relatively stable when people look at their alternatives and uh, when they're graduating from high school and or they are laid off and, and one of the ways that they can uh, react to a recession is to go back to school. So I would expect that uh, that community colleges in particular would continue to see uh, significant enrollment growth. That, of course, uh, is it's going to be very difficult uh, over the course of the next four or five months for the legislature to try to 
patch the $700 million hole uh, in that budget and to leave uh, institutions like Ivy Tech uh, unscathed. Mm -hmm. Uh, My understanding is that higher education is likely to hit a 4 percent down and Ivy Tech will probably be the only institution in Indiana that doesn't get cut. Now, Governor Mitch Daniels has prided himself in positioning Indiana to be in a relatively better position than those um, surrounding states. Uh, Based on the new numbers that have come out uh, fairly recently, can he still stand by that? Well, uh, I'll I'll admit that I'm a Republican and I voted for the guy and I I like him. uh, But part of it is it's absolutely true that Indiana is in a better position than the surrounding states. That's that's unambiguously true. The why is uh, somewhat of a stretch on his part. Uh, we had a rather massive increase in sales taxes that uh, was nine months of a he- ahead of the property tax cut. So if you essentially mm-hmm. double tax people for nine months at the state level, you're going to have more money than the surrounding states that didn't do that. So part of the cushion that we've got is the fact that we uh, we preceded our property tax cut that was being paid for with the sales tax increase and we had the sales tax increase first. And another angle in terms of relative effects in Indiana versus the surrounding states is that our manufacturing sector, although still, still – more concentrated than any other state in terms of the percentage of jobs in manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, is continuing to gradually diversify out of the automotive sector, uh, though that's a very big part of manufacturing in Indiana, the auto, mm-hmm. auto parts suppliers as well as the assembly plants. Uh, but it's not as big as in Michigan or Ohio, and those states have really been struggling. Uh, their manufacturing sectors have, have been uh, dragging the whole state down. Uh, in our case, we're expanding in areas uh, and not just manufacturing and logistics, uh, you know, life sciences, uh, uh, research and development kinds of things that are bringing new jobs into the state, not at the same pay rate and not at the same numbers as some of the jobs that are disappearing in manufacturing. But as we get somewhat weaned away from the dependence we used to have on manufacturing, it helps buffer us somewhat from the the weight around the ankles that uh, these more manufacturing auto sector, especially focused states around us, have have suffered from. And in the auto auto area in particular, Indiana is one of the few states that was heavily dependent on auto manufacturing. Mm-hmm. That is the recipient of significant amounts of foreign direct investment in auto manufacturing. Uh, that the uh, when Toyota set up shop in in Princeton and then again in Lafayette and and Honda uh, in one of the greens Greensburg Greensburg, Greensburg. Yeah. Uh, Subaru up it, in Lafayette yeah, it, it 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 is a significant it says something significant about the Indiana manufacturing employee that though there were opportunities at, in any of the southern states with much weaker union environments uh, that they chose to, uh, to locate here. Mm-hmm. Well, we, uh, you know, we have a lot of loyal listeners in the Kokomo area, so, Kokomo area, so that's uh, been very difficult on those. Very difficult. And, will, con- and yeah. will continue to be so given right. how heavily dependent they are on Chrysler and its horrific <clears throat> month mm-hmm. of December. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, that, yeah. That's going to be a challenge yeah, for and, those employees, and that's what that's one thing I wanted to ask is you know in ter- in, in terms of uh, you know economic calendars. I mean, it, it, let's assume we're well. Let's don't assume. I want let me ask you this first: Are we at the bottom of this, or or, or no? So things could still <laughs> no. get worse. No, they and, and I think they they at the national level will in fact get worse. Because we've been talking about the mortgage resets of some of those teaser loans that didn't happen so much, uh, at least in my part of Indiana. Uh, the negative amortization mortgages where somebody would pay less than their full interest portion mm-hmm. so that the balance on their mortgage would grow over time. Uh, While the house got more valuable. Right, oh, right yes, <laughs> of course. Uh, in perpetuity at least. Uh, the, the, the problem with that is that those things reset. Uh, from the 2005, 2006, 2007 reset in 
2009, 2010, 2011. We didn't the, – the mortgage problem of 2008 was not on negative amortization mortgages. It was on mortgages that people took out that they simply couldn't pay. This, the next wave, which will come later in the year and in the next year, is about mortgages that were just wrong. I mean they were – they pay half the interest that you owe and your mortgage payment goes up by uh, two and a half times when it resets. And what makes it difficult to answer the question of when will we hit bottom yeah. economically is that so much really depends on action at the federal level that has yet to be defined as to what will happen, what policies will be put into place or strongly encouraged in the lending industry to renegotiate loans with customers uh, to have terms that the customers can pay off ultimately and that the banks and lenders can still make money on, uh, what kinds of investments the federal government will agree to make in activities that will help jobs at the local and state levels. You know, uh, For example, we hear a lot about infrastructure spending. Well, that can mean a lot of different mm -hmm. things. But Indiana, like every state, has lots of needs for improvements of roads and bridges, sewer systems and water supplies, schools and, and new facilities for universities and, and the public schools. Um, no shortage of, of a long list of things that would be benefited by major federal infusion of funds to build or improve these facilities. Um, what will they actually wind up doing though? I mean that's uh, certainly a hot topic for debate on Capitol Hill right now and uh, you know how long it takes them to come to a solution and how much give and take goes on and, and compromising along the way will shape what the final product is that eventually will trickle down to be felt here closer to home. Until we know more about that, it's going to be hard to say whether we're talking about another month or two before we see some light uh, at the end of the tunnel or more likely latter part of the year. But depending on, on what Congress winds up doing, it could be into next year before we really see a turnaround. The, the, National, Economic, the National Bureau of Economic Research is the, the group that dates recessions and they recently mm -hmm. came out and said uh, December or November of 2007 is when it started. And you say, so the average recession is how many months and you count forward and say, well, it ought to be done in May, June. Uh, I, th I think the, the best thing to, to, to realize is if you go back to the deepest recession that we had uh, post-World War II uh, and then you realize that that, that recession was preceded uh, by another one in the 80-81 period that was relatively short and shallow, that, if you, that many economists now think that that was just one string of bad time, that that's a three-year period. Of, of economic downturn, that there was a little downturn and then a major one. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're more likely to mirror that. Now, the, the challenge is that we got out of that period uh, on two, th two things. One was a major increase in business investment that was motivated in part by the investment tax credit that was put in in the early uh, – in the first Reagan uh, tax cut. Uh, we had a 25 percent increase in, in investment spending in 1983 over 1982 because in large part of this investment tax credit. One way forward is to get businesses buying major pieces of equipment and being motivated by the tax code. That's one way forward. It's not a way forward though that the Obama folks have been talking about too much. Uh, the other way forward is through these, these infrastructure projects. But the, the, the kinds of things that even the shovel-ready ones aren't really going to stimulate the economy for uh, three-quarters of a year to longer, right? Because even if you wrote them a check today, they don't start moving earth until May and they don't really start uh, spending the kind of money on uh, labor until later in the year. So even shovel-ready shovel projects are not quite as ready as they would need to be to have the kind of impact that we might hope to get us going forward quickly. Another example of a different type of action at the federal level that we hear a lot of talk about is investment in green jobs, whatever those mean. And of course, that means a lot of different things to different people. 
But Indiana has a fair bit of activity going on in the R&D end of, of uh, energy efficiency, let's say, and energy production to build on that could benefit from a federal program to pump money into that. Uh, there are a, a rapidly growing number of uh, wind-generated uh, electrical generating uh, facilities around the state and in, in mm-hmm. areas mostly in the northern part of the state. Um, they're one of the faster-growing manufacturing companies uh, in the last year or so is Enerdel in, uh, in the Indy area, which has many hundreds of employees now building lithium-ion batteries for vehicles. And that is likely to be a growing field at least for several years as we move more toward electric cars for, for a variety of reasons to try to keep the environment cleaner. A company like that and others that feed into it uh, and maybe even competitors uh, would be a good investment to consider in places like Kokomo and Anderson where you've got a lot of people familiar with the auto industry and with skills in that field but uh, without great work opportunities and there are facilities ready to occupy. Um, so again, if the, if the federal stimulus pushes in that direction, Indiana is well poised to try to tap into that. And that could lead to some job growth. But, you know, it'll take a while for that yeah. to all play out. We've got about 10 minutes to go, and our phone numbers are 855-0811 or out of the Bloomington area, outside of the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. And you can still join us at our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Let's talk a little bit about coping mechanisms. How do, how do we get through this as gracefully as possible? Um, you know, if you have some money in the bank, you're not probably getting much interest on it. Are you better off buying some property with that money be in the hope that that will uh, – appreciate um, um, more appreciably oh, than, <laughs> than, the, than just having it in a bank. What, what kind of advice do you give people as they uh, look at this kind of dark time ahead of them? I, my, my recommendation would be to remain liquid. That is, property is probably not a good idea, though you can come by it fairly, fairly cheaply. And you, if you are really flush with cash and don't need that as your your safety net, then sure, property would be fine. But there are a whole host of uh, headaches that come with owning property as well. So, so stay liquid is one thing. S- uh, absolutely stay liquid and be frugal mm-hmm. uh, because uh, you never know when uh, the economy is going to rear up and, and bite you. So even if you have a stable job, working as an employee of Indiana State or Indiana University or a public school system, you may not be seeing a raise for the next two or three years, which means that in an era where inflation may be 2, 3, 4 percent, you're likely to see a real inflation-adjusted income cut over the next two years. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to follow on with that. In terms of strategies, you know, where you should put your money – it really depends in, in large part on your time frame uh, and how soon you need the money. As Bob was saying, you know, if, if you need it for spending uh, currently to buy groceries or put the kids through school or whatever it may be, then you don't want to lock it up in something that's not going to have a, a payoff, a, a predictable payoff for a long time. On the other hand, if you're able to cover your, your current expenses – and still have something left over, then putting money aside into the securities markets actually isn't a bad idea. Prices are, are low by standards of recent history. And, uh, you know, at some point they're going to go back up. Uh, well, I'm certainly optimistic that they will. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so now might be a time to buy if you don't expect to see those profits really show up for several years and if you don't expect to need that money for a long time. Mm-hmm. But, so- Oh, oh, you're, you're right. You, you mentioned the banks, you know, are, are not paying much and, and the interest they're paying on, on assets in the banks is, is laughable. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, right. there's got to be a better place. But these days, cash seems like a relatively safe bet. <laughs> but the mattress, stay away from well, the mattress. Stay away from, <laughs> stay away from the mattress. As one of my okay. colleagues on the finance uh, faculty commented recently, said in, in this kind of a market, there's really only two positions to assume, cash and fetal. Right. <laughs> I, I love that line. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to Dave on the phone. Dave? Hey, I had a few notions um, that I just wanted to run by the panel there. 
and just have comments on it. Uh, I heard a fellow talk yesterday on one of the news shows on this station about just the pace, hectic pace that you, we in the U.S. have seemed to put ourselves on for economic growth and consumerism. And maybe it's time for an adjustment in that regard. I think the fellow's with the London School of Business. Basically, I think he was considering unsustainable consumerism. Mm-hmm. Then I also wanted to just get your thoughts on how small business can be put back in fashion after what I would term the Walmart effect. Hmm. And that's my like to hear your thoughts on those. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for the call, Dave. Uh, who wants to take that first? I think we've already commented on the, the notion of unsustainable consumerism. It really it, – we – we have engaged in uh, a, a series of behaviors over time where uh, we pay credit cards with other credit card uh, transfer allowances and and that is as the the caller said is unsustainable the 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 best the best way always is of course to uh, to pay for everything as soon as you possibly can. So if you can't pay your credit card for for this Christmas uh, when it comes due, pay it the next month. Make sure you're on a plan to to get that down. And, you know, most families had a uh, modest uh, Christmas this year. You know, remember what giving is about and it's not necessarily about how big it is, how many batteries it takes or uh, any of that. And in terms of small business, it and, and small business versus versus large business, the businesses that took a, the biggest hit at the uh, during the Christmas season were the smaller, higher end stores. So the boutiques that are owned by mom and dad and pop and all the rest, uh, and those are the ones that have the least access to credit markets that tighten up so much more quickly. Walmart was the only retailer that I heard. That was up in sales, though it was up less than it thought it was going to be. It was up still two percent. Uh, I don't think there's any out Walmarting Walmart. The only way you uh, compete in a Walmart world is by providing service that they never do. Well, there, that that really is a key concept. That um, the key to sustaining and and have growing a business when it's a small operation, a small mom and pop business in an environment where big box stores, parts of national chains come to town and open up, is to do a better job than they can of meeting customer needs. That may mean you've got a select inventory that offers the things that customers want that aren't just kind of your mass market selection, or it may mean you've got better customer service and that you really get to know your customers and what their needs and interests are and and cater to them in ways that the mass merchandisers don't. Or that you provide other conveniences. You know, it could be service like, well, we'll deliver that for you and set it up or, or, you know, those sorts of things that often aren't the case in the big boxes. There was an interesting study a few years back on the effect of Walmart superstores, a study that looked at several of them around the country uh, where, when they had come to town and what effect they had on small businesses, other, other retail businesses in the area. And the general finding was that Retail activity in the town or city where the superstore located actually increased overall even when you take out the amount that was attached to the Walmart superstore. But what that where that was coming from was the surrounding communities that no longer kept their, their shoppers as close oh. to home. They would go to where the big store was and people would go there. And while they were there, they would then shop at some of the other stores in that same city where the superstore was. And so if you've got one of those, it's not necessarily bad for local businesses, but it does hurt some place. The, uh, as for the uh, consumerism and sustainability, you know, Bob suggested paying off the uh, loans you've got, the, the credit card bills as soon as you can, which is always a good thing to do. But even better is to not incur that debt in the first place. If you can have the discipline to save up money until you're able to pay cash for that appliance, that TV set, that car, that home. I mean, there are people who buy homes for cash after years of saving. Uh, you are free from a lot of the burden that so many millions of consumers face in being trapped by debt. The, the, what I, I did a number of interviews over the 
uh, Christmas season with our local television stations and one of the things that they had noticed was a a return of uh, layaways and they asked me whether this was a good idea and my response was no. The far better reaction is to on January 1st go up – go and set up a Christmas uh, account in your – and start saving and just keep putting money aside out of every check and then you don't have to. Uh, swipe the credit card when it comes time to buy Christmas the next time around. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we've got about three minutes to go. So, can anybody explain the 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 gasoline fuel price um, swing to us in like uh, I don't know a minute or less? Bob? <laughs> without without using economic jargon, let's see, because uh, I could say the inelasticity of demand and supply uh, make it such that small changes in demand or supply will have large price swings. But about four people would understand right. it in the audience, so we'll attempt to do this in a way that it uh, is a little easier to understand. The biggest driver in energy uh, in energy prices over the last three years has been increased demand by China and India mm-hmm. on the assumption that their growth rates would continue to be 8 to 10 percent in production and that their energy uses would increase by more than that as their consumers started to buy cars. When that expectation went away, so did the need to uh, on paper buy access to oil. And so the from 150 uh, a barrel to 50 a barrel is – the decimation of the Chinese and Indian economy because of our dismal Christmas. Okay. Hmm. That's very good, Jerry. And you know what how that shows up at the gas station, you know, at where you pay at the pump, uh, is a little I mean, it's certainly affected by that. Our our gas prices fell uh, wonderfully over uh, the fall and, and, and winter. I took a quick trip over to Missouri over the holidays and saw it as low as a buck twenty three nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a Walmart gas station, of all places. But um, the, the prices have been climbing back up in the last couple of weeks, you know, 15, 20 cents a gallon. And you wonder why, because oil prices are still low, mm-hmm. but it, I think it responds to news. You know, when, when there's unrest in the Gaza area, you figure, well, a lot of that could ripple out into the broader Arabian uh, oil production parts of the world and then people worry and that starts pushing fuel prices up even though the supply and demand factors haven't really changed yet uh, in a way that would drive that. The, the inventories of, of distillates has fallen uh, in, in recent weeks uh, and for two, for two reasons. One, uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the Bush administration is buying up oil now that it's cheap to replace the oil that is sold out of the SPR. Uh, and two, the OPEC cuts uh, finally had their impact. Okay, And we are out of time. This has been fascinating and hopefully we can do it again soon and maybe the news will be a little bit better. <laughs> so I want to thank our, our guests today, Jerry Conover and Bob, Robert Bob Gill. And uh, for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.